Hey guys, LA Card Dude. Uh, welcome to the episode eight of our podcast. Today we have uh, Alan on the show from Frost Collectibles. Introduce yourself, Alan. How's it going, guys? My name is Alan with Frost Collectibles. I am a full time dealer. Um, I left the world of sales management after 17 years of a grueling career to do what I loved. And it's been uh, a great ride ever since. And nice. I, I I left a very big sports, sports market, the Bay Area, to come to a very small sports market. But uh, I, I got some tips to tell you how to, how to be successful no matter where you're at. Nice. So how did you get into the hobby? Well, I, I like I mentioned, I, I grew up in the Bay Area. And I was lucky enough to watch Ricky Henderson and Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco. And I stayed all the way through 2007. Uh, I just turned 40. So I, I, from Barry Bonds in 2007 all the way back to Ricky Henderson's first stint with the A's. I remember going to Oakland A's games. I watched... Joe Montana win the Super Bowls, uh, Oakland Raiders games. Where I was from in the Bay Area, I was lucky enough that I got to go to Oakland A's and Giants games and 49ers and Raiders games, you know, and watch the Golden State Warriors. And so uh, my father was a big fan and he got me into it. And I can remember going to shows as young as four and five years old when the quote unquote junk wax era was kind of ramping up in the mid eighties. And I, I've always loved the sport. That, that's kind of how I got started with it is, is with my pops. Yeah. Those old shows were pretty cool. I remember them having a uh, sports guy, like sports athletes just signing for free, like DiMaggio, Muhammad Ali. It was a crazy time. It was a it was a way different time. He didn't have to pay twenty for a headshot. He didn't have to pay twenty to get it signed. Mm-hmm. Guys did it for the for the love of the team they played for and the area they played for. Different generation players stayed with teams longer. You know, it's not like guys were getting traded every other year. And you would get players that had real loyalty to their area. And they would love doing card shows in their local areas. And so that's what I grew up on. I grew, I was lucky enough for the A's to be successful, the 49ers to be the most successful team in that genre. And Joe Montana being, in my opinion, the greatest quarterback of all time. I know that's a controversial opinion, but four Super Bowls, four wins. Three-time Super Bowl MVP, eleven touchdowns, zero interceptions. The guy was perfect in in Super Bowl games. And I know Tom Brady's got more wins, but he also had way more opportunities. So I just I I was lucky to be in a great area during a great time in sports. So you've collected all the way through since you were five. Yeah, five to six. Uh, my dad was smart enough. To buy, you know, a, a few 
pretty good cards back in the day, and a lot of it got lost. I went off to college. Um, I lost a little interest in the sport in my teenage years, in my early 20s, and then pretty much directly after after college, I recognized right away that I'd spent five years learning something that I had almost zero interest in. And it took me 15 more years to to finally fully pull the trigger and leave a career in sales management that, that did very well and go with something I, I loved where I could have the time with my family, have time to hunt and fish and see friends instead of being on the road four days a week and staying in hotels. And and I've been much happier ever since the switch. And it's been just as equally as profitable. That's awesome. So what do you do exactly to make profits enough to actually live on uh, and do it full time? So uh, as far as full, full time, it's been a little over a couple of years. Now, that was right when the boom was hitting, but I had been collecting for many years before that. So I had, I had dumped probably 80, 90 grand in capital into cards before the major spike, which is, I know something that's going to be tough for a lot of people to do now because of the aftermath that we're in. Cards are going back down in price. That's natural. The amount of inflation that we saw was un- it, it, it just was not sustainable. It cannot continue to go up at that rate. So the leveling off that we're seeing is totally natural. It's totally fine. It's nothing to be scared about. I focused on blue chip Hall of Fame vintage players for the most part. Vintage baseball was my main passion, but I do everything from ultra modern to pre-war. From you know T two hundred six T two hundred five, all the way to you know brand new twenty twenty three Bowman, and uh, I had the biggest passion for vintage baseball, and I was lucky enough to start buying big Hall of Famers in good shape raw for pennies on the dollar of what they cost now. And I was also lucky enough to get in when PSA did bulk deals for $8 a card, $10 a card. So I could send off, you know, a hundred cards for 800 bucks. And it was just, it was too easy not to make money. Now with eBay and basically every online company changing their rules and turning into you know, and if you sell above $600, I think is about the average for most of these companies. They 1099 you. If you don't get your business licenses set up, it's really hard to make your margins work for you. You need to be clearing 30% on, on pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not getting tax write offs for everything that you buy, Every time you travel, your gas, any time you take out a customer to try and wine and dine them, then you will slowly chip away at, at profit or, or your capital, whatever your initial investment was. 
you've got to you've got to go the legal route. I think in 2023, you've got to be fully you know get your business license, your EIN, you register with your state, your Secretary of State. You need to have all that stuff in order so that when you go to your tax guy at the end of the year, and eBay says, "Well, you sold a hundred thousand dollars in cards," you know they want thirty-eight thousand dollars in taxes. That with your write-offs, you can wash seventy percent of that away, and then then you're profitable. Yeah, you need to be making. I my on most of the videos that I put out, I say you need to make your thirty percent. Um, I try and buy most collections or cards between 60 and 70% of what I think I can sell them for. And that's just a kind of steadfast rule. And a lot of people don't like it. A lot of people think that they're getting ripped off. There's people that cry because, oh my God, I thought this was a hundred dollars and you're offering me 2000 and so you, you you run the gamut of of collectors and people that are buying and selling and and you just have to stick to your set of rules and rarely deviate from them only on very special occasions if it's something that you really want for your PC or that you know a really nice raw car that you think could come back super high grade if we're talking vintage where the difference between a seven and an eight makes three or four thousand dollars difference, and uh, that's the only time that I that I deviate from offering sixty to seventy percent of what I think I can sell the cards for. Yeah, here in Los Angeles, it was a lot easier to find that kind of stuff, like collections and cards, like in the nineties. But after I oh, big time, show, big time. Yeah, after Antique Roadshow and when eBay got big and the internet, the stuff dried up and everyone in Los Angeles is a salesman. So it's really hard to find collections because OfferUp is full of junk and it's just, it's tough here. Is it, do you notice it being easier where you live now than it was in the Bay Area? No, it's, it, it's actually tougher just because of the lack of cards. Now, um, you and I talked previously. I, I mentioned uh, for you to watch one of my videos, and, and it was the top five ways to find and buy collections. And I think there's actually some things in there that are still viable. Um, a really big one is going to the areas. So I'm a vintage sports guy. I am an Eagles member. At my local Eagles chapter, I was an Elks Lodge member, and I was the young, I'm the youngest by 40 years at both of them. But I hand out my business cards because these guys are typically a little bit older. Uh, they're typically not involved on, in the online stuff. They have different interests in the world, and that's a great way to find cards. Estate sales do work. But you, you can't just be a customer at an estate sale. You need to go find the person who runs the estate sale, introduce yourself, hand over a card, tell them what you do. Say, hey, look, you know, I'm willing to appraise collections for you if maybe you're willing to give me first dibs at, at the collection. Or I'm willing to appraise collections 
for a small fee. You know, another big one that dealers forget about is time is a is a huge asset. You never get it back. You know, if you buy ten thousand one dollar cards, it's almost it's even if you paid a thousand bucks for it, it's not worth it. The time you're going to sink into listing those cards and selling those cards and shipping those cards. You know, if your time is worth more than five bucks an hour, which I value my time at thirty-five, forty an hour, if I'm not, if it's not making sense, I'm just not going to do it. And so, you find other way, other avenue streams. You know, like going to guys that run estate sales and say, "Look, I'll appraise your collection. Here's what I charge an hour, or let me get first dibs at whatever you find." Um, Going to the places that are gonna going going and finding the people that are gonna have vintage sports cards and talking to them directly and say, "Look, well, here's what I do. I can come over to your house. We can sit down. I can take you out to a dinner. If you feel more comfortable not going to your house, bring your cards. I'll look through them. I'll show you what they sell for, and I'll tell you what I can pay for them, so that you can get rid of them and I can make a little bit of money." And those are also kind of in my rules. I've, I've got a few built-in rules, and and they're loose. You know, they're, 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 I, I try and stick to them as much as possible. But you know, if there's something I really want for my PC or something I don't have, you know, I'll, I'll flex on a rule. Or if if I think it's you know a long shot gamble might pay out really well, I'll flex on a rule or two. But you really need to find. Your your four or five core rules and beliefs about your business and stick to them, and yeah, for sure. those that's are great the tips. way you'll, you'll make it long time, long term. Yeah, those are some great tips. I never even I never thought of that. One question I have is: Do you make pro- big profits off grading the cards that you get from the collections? I do, I do, and so it's it's one of the main things I look for. And uh, I'm just going to throw this out there real quick because there's probably people that think if you can get a $10,000 collection for 250 bucks, that's a good deal. It's not a good deal. Be honest and fair with that person, and they will they'll hand your name over to 10 or 20 other people. Treat everyone fairly and honestly, and it will pay you back threefold, fourfold. And my biggest collection purchases, my biggest profits have all come from people that I treated fairly and that were word of mouth recommendations. Hey, you know what? I've got a guy who's actually got a half a storage unit full of cards. And then that turns out, you know, you you make 30 grand on on buying that collection. And the guy's happy to empty his storage locker out. He got fair value. I'm, I was able to make profit. You know, it's uh, buying raw and grading is a huge one. And um, I was going to save this for a video on my channel, but I, I told you I would I would let you in on one little secret. A huge way that I make money is uh, I buy the highest level PSA membership every year, and I grade cards for people. I go to Little League games. My son's in Little League. Uh, when I go around to every show that I go to, 
I hand out tons of cards. <clears throat> and I tell people, hey, if you've got, you know, 30 cards you want graded, let me know. I'll send them off to PSA. We write up a contract and I charge a small fee and I make a, a 20, 25% of my annual profit is probably from people that don't know how to deal with PSA, don't want to deal with PSA, don't know how to clean a card, don't know what's a nine and what's a six. And that's a huge one for me. And, uh, it really takes attention to detail when uh, you're uh, pre-grading cards, for sure. Like yeah. I just started doing it, and I've been really picky. Like any little dimple, I say no. Yeah, you, ha- you have to be. You have to. Yes. Be. So my last sub did like ninety-five percent tens out of like twenty-six cards, which is pretty crazy. So I was pretty is happy it, about that. Ultra, ultra modern. Yeah. Right now, I I specifically uh, deal in that. So I buy yep. collections or bulk off people that collected mm. big in like 2016 through 2018 because 18 gotcha. was loaded. 18 was yeah, a yeah. big time loaded. So that's what I'm doing now. And I'm also doing grading. So people send me cards. Uh, uh, I started uh, this like two weeks ago or two months ago. A 95 gen rate is insane. That's unbelievable. Um. I think the best gym rate I've got back from PSA lately was 60%. I'm dealing yeah, with a little bit older. I'm dealing with, with 2010 to 2020. So there's some old, little bit older cards mixed in there. For the most part, when people, when, I, when I'm grading for other people, it seems to be 2010 to 2020. There's very few people. That uh, if I see a vintage collection, there's very few people that want me to grade cards for them. If it's a vintage collection, they're normally probably wanting to sell it. Uh, a lot of these people are, if they're original owners of the cards, they're older on in life. They have better things they'd rather spend the money on. They haven't looked at the cards in 15 years. You know, and that's where I have to look very closely. So I can give that guy an accurate estimate. You know, I, I just got a, a 65 Pete Rose and a 65 Sandy Koufax. And they both came back eight. And wow. if you look up the value on a PSA 8, 65 Pete Rose and 65 Sandy Koufax, they're, they're expensive cards. I called the guy back up because I was putting them somewhere in seven, maybe seven, five. And I called the guy up and said, "Hey, look, I, you know, I, w- I want to give you a little more money. Your cards came back better, better than I was hoping." And uh, of course, he was fine with that, and that turned me on to two more of his buddies that had vintage collections. Damn, that's awesome! Yeah, those old, those vintage cards, one point makes such a difference in price, like from six to oh, seven or seven to eight. Huge. Yeah, yeah. You crazy. look at the you look at the flagship card, the 52 Mickey Mantle, and a PSA 1, it sells for roughly 30 grand, and a PSA 2, they're about 45 grand. So from a 1 to a 2, it's a $15,000 difference, you know. Yeah, and I notice for vintage collectors, eye appeal and centering is really mm-hmm. important. 
It is, and and that's something that I am a little uh, a little bit hesitant on because I'm I consider myself old school. I'm forty, but I remember when cards, even if they were a little miscut or or seventy thirty, as long as it had sharp corners and sharp edges and wasn't bit in half, that was still called a near mint card. And uh, I, I totally get the eye appeal part, but when I buy for my PC, I don't, I don't care about tens. I don't care about nines. I just want that card. So if I, a lot of people upgrade cards. And I only do that with my top five or six players: Reggie Jackson, Ricky Henderson, William Mays, Mickey Mantle. Um, you know, if I if I had a fifty nine four and I just got back, I, I'm expecting back a six and maybe a maybe a seven on a fifty nine mantle. I'll keep the seven because that's just like a blue chip stock that will always go up. Um, but for the most part, I will hang on to lower grade cards because I just love the card. The grade is not so much for me myself. I understand for most buyers, the grade is the important part. For me, yeah, I just sure. love the cards. Yeah, for me, I collect rare cards, like low parallels of Kershaw. That's my guy. I'll collect uh, SPs or SSPs, like old ones. And when it comes to cards yeah. like that, like grading, honestly, doesn't matter much. I try to tell that to some people. They try, they'll buy like a out of 25. I'll be selling it to them. And... They're like, how's the corners? How's the surface? I'm all, bro, it's so rare. It's, it does, that makes a yeah, little difference. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's numbered out of 25. It doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't, you'll, you'll see a lot of these guys now that are getting the, you know, the flawless, the national treasures, you know, the, the one of ones. They don't even go for scores. They just go for authentic. And Yeah, exactly. You, you have to think every time that a card gets a patch insert or there's an autograph or it's a thick 130 card or a thicker. I just created a Brian Erlacher card for a guy that had to have been an inch thick. Damn. And I've never seen a PSA slab like this in my life. <laughs> and I've graded thousands of cards with PSA. Uh, it was an inch and a half thick. And, uh, but you have to you have to think of it this way: when you're dealing with a flat card, you have four corners. When you're dealing with a thick card, you have eight corners because you have four on the back that can all get dented, and four on the front that can all get dented. And yeah, so when and you're move, when you're looking at to them. yeah, they got they have more weight to them. You know, if they come to you in a one touch, those one touches definitely don't hold them all tightly. It, there's a lot more room for digging around, and I learned that the hard way doing some really, really high-end RPAs for a guy several years back, and we're getting back six and seven, and I felt so bad for this guy. I did his next two submissions you know, with no, no charge because he lost tens of thousands of dollars on this just because the grades were so low when I probably – you know, we're doing stuff numbered out of five, numbered out of ten, five or six one of one, major, major prospect RPAs. And 
I probably shouldn't have been going for auto score and card score. I should have just been getting them authenticated and slabbed. Oh, I never grade the auto. I think it's kind of yeah. weird to do that. So yeah, it doesn't you know, add value. You're right. You're right. And this was this was something right as the pen pre pre pandemic pennings kicking off. And, and, you know, I was still kind of finding my feet with the grading, the ultra modern. And that's why I felt so bad for this guy that, that I, I did my best to make it up to him. And I submitted 80 or 90 more cards for him and, and did, didn't charge him a penny. And, you know, just 20 hours worth of work to, to just to make it up to him because I felt so bad. Yeah, that's nice of you. You definitely... Uh, I see what you do there. You you work on word of mouth. You're really nice to everybody. You hook them up. That's a good strategy. I mean, I I I cater my customers like they're way more valuable than any money or any card. I aim to keep them happy and create a you know a good community where people can share stuff and hook each other up. Yeah, no, we we met through eBay, correct? Yeah, we did. Did you get your card yet? Oh man, I buy so many cards. Which, okay, which card was so, it? So oh, the I, soda. I can't remember. I don't think so. No. Yeah. Okay, the, the the soda short print. So in there, I also threw a another soda, and I do a handwritten card and a business card in every everything that I send out, and I try and find. A bonus card, depending on how much you spend, sometimes I'll throw four or five bonus cards in. And you know, if if it's, a, I always try and ask what player or team do you like, and I'll, you know, I'll throw that kind of stuff in for them. And uh, it, it's it gets you return business. You know, it gets you one hundred percent positive feedback. It gets people willing to follow your eBay page or your whatever page i do a lot of instagram selling i actually completely rehauled my ebay page i tore everything down and started from the ground up uh two years ago um and kind of changed up the format that i was using and uh there's a lot there's lots of ways to have success you just gotta you gotta find your niche and and you know, make some principles and stick by them. Um, I, I'll throw one more out there that is a huge one: link up with your local store. Uh, I know in LA it's probably tougher because these guys got plenty of money to buy collections. They've got you know massive inventory. Where I live, I live in a town of eighty thousand people in Montana. There's only one store, but he's a, he's a great store, and he's a huge ally of mine. If he ever just bought a big collection, and someone else walks in with the collection the very next day, he just calls me and says, "Hey, Alan, come take a look at this collection." And you know, do you want to do you want to buy it? Do you want to go half on it? And we work really well together, and that is a huge asset because if he ever can't cover whatever's going on, you know, cause he's not dealing with a $10 million store. You know, it's a beautiful store. He's got great inventory, tons of business, only one in town. 
got the market cornered here. But, you know, there's times when you spend lots on a collection and it takes you a while to recoup. You know, you don't have 40 grand, 30 grand, 20 grand sitting around and floating capital to invest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we partner up on a lot of stuff. And I would tell everybody, get in with your store. Let them know that you're a small dealer, a big dealer. Let them know that you're looking to buy overflow. Let them, let them know you're looking to buy, you know, anything that they're wanting to pass on. Let, you know, maybe, and I always, I always kick back to, to my store. I'll give them a finder's fee if he ever kicks me a, a deal, especially if it turns out to be particularly profitable. Yeah. And, I have one uh, more thing I wanted to cover and ask you because we're running out of time a little bit. How do yeah. you make profits on eBay? Like for me, I just completely stopped selling on eBay because the fees are crazy. Is it like, is there a certain number of items that you have to have up there where the fee becomes uh, like workable? How does that, how do you make a profit on no, that? No, no, no. So uh, quantity is a big, a big one, right? You, you, you want to have 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 listings. Now that's tough to do solo, right? By yourself. Now, there is AI programs. Cronosio and Card Pro are, are both AI programs that are pretty good at identifying cards where you you got to buy an expensive scanner. You know, it's a thousand bucks for a scanner. It's several hundred bucks for the software. It's uh, 60 to 300 bucks a month for the service after you've bought the software. But you can scan 50 cards. And five minutes later, it'll have 99% of them identified correctly. All you do is price them, and with one push of a button, you can scoot them all to eBay. That's nuts. So what is the printer, this $1,000 printer you speak of? You want Fujitsu. Uh, there's only two types of printer that work with ChronoCard. ChronoCard's the, the, the premier of the two AI programs right now. Um, ChronoCard Pro is the one you want. They get they offer a free sample, so mess with the free sample. But you have there's only two types of printers: Epson and uh, uh, Fujifitsu, Fuji Fuji Sidu. I can't pronounce it properly, but the uh, the oh. Fujifitsu, I believe, is is the, the Fujifitsu. There they you know they start at eight hundred and go to twelve hundred. And they're the only ones that will do thicker cards. Like even even Topps Chrome won't work through an Epson scanner. Yeah. So it's I, it's worth it you, to buy the more expensive scanner. Are you talking about the scanners where you drop uh, the stuff from the top? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I bought one of those, a Fujitsu one, and I did. I tried a Chrome card, and it wrecked it. So. Which one did you buy? You mind my asking? Because oh, man, it was there's two of them. Fifty bucks. It was a ch- ch- cheapy. I just wanted to test it out. Okay. There is, uh, yeah, you, you got to be going for the eight hundred or above dollar ones. And uh, on the Fujitsu's, there you have to open the guard, and there is a, a a small. Did it leave a scrape on your card? No, I put it in with a sleeve, and it just like demolished yeah. the sleeve. Okay, so I do know there's a couple models of the Fujitsu that have a small metal guide 
that can scrape the card, but it's very easy to remove. And oh. I, I've, I, I know that you need to remove that guard if you're going to be running anything through there, basically. Do you know the model name or just the company? Um, I, I, it's the Fujitsu 28700, I believe, is the, is the best one. I talked to the vice president of Fujitsu after spending 500 bucks on an Epson and being so bummed that I couldn't do a single modern card. I uh, got a hold of Fujitsu, and it turned out that he comes out to Montana and fly fishes 20 minutes from where I'm from. So we hit it off, and he was like, look, I'm going to tell you this is the best one. And uh, I can send you – I'll, I'll, I'll text you the, the model, and maybe you can attach it to the to the mm-hmm. listing of your podcast. But sure. I think it's the, the, the Series 2 8700 is the, the one that – the vice president says is the best. Awesome. All right. So we're going to wrap it up. We're a little bit over 30 minutes. So thanks yeah. so much for being on the show. Dude, you had a lot of good info, like stuff I didn't know and stuff I'm going to do. It was awesome. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate you inviting me on. And uh, yeah, anytime, man. I'm, I'm, I, I love this stuff. It's my passion. So I'm here for you whenever you, whenever you want to make a call. Cool, bro. So, um, Frost Collectibles is where you could be found, right? On eBay and Instagram? Uh, YouTube is Frost Collectibles. Uh, eBay is Frost Collectibles 157. And it's it's just going through the overhaul right now. So I've only got 1,100, 1,200 listings up. Um, my Instagram is Bay Area underscore Vintage Baseball. Awesome. Yeah, and hey guys, thanks for listening. You could find me as always on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LA Car Dude. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. See you next time. Have a good one.